2: My name is Patience Maryman Ball.
0: I'm Ruth Schaber, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast.
1: I grew up with a unique sense of privilege, no question, but in part in a fairly unrecognizable way. My father died unexpectedly when I was seven, leaving my mom as the sole emotional and financial bulwark of the family. My mother, at the time finishing her MBA from Kellogg Business School, took a job as a CPA at a big five accounting firm and went on to have a strikingly successful career, first in corporate America and then running her own business. Thus, for me, through my medical education and career, it felt natural to find female role models residents, attending physicians, teachers. I married a woman just prior to her entry into corporate America onto a team that was mostly run by women, and now the whole entity has a woman at its helm. I certainly believe the gender diversity I experienced early in life has enhanced my career, my wealth, and my life in unmeasurable ways. But like I said, I was privileged. Out in the wider world, the default is still old boys clubs replete with glass ceilings and stodgy boardrooms full of old white men. Maybe just maybe, we can do better. Patience Merime Ball was Principal Investment Officer and Global Head of making on Women at the International Finance Corporation. She is the founder and CEO of Women of the World Endowment, an investment nonprofit focused on centralizing women as economic, environmental, and social change makers, while delivering market rate risk-adjusted returns and impact at scale. Patient holds a JD from Pritzker School of Law and an MBA from Kellogg at Northwestern University. Ruth Schaber is the founder and president of the Tara Health Foundation, which promotes health, well-being, and opportunity for women and girls through innovative evidence-informed programs. She is also the co-founder and board chair of Reventures, Ventures, a group of foundations and investors that collaborate to bring new types of capital and enterprise to the field of reproductive health in the United States. Ruth holds an MD from the University of Pennsylvania and a BA from Yale University. They are both authors of the highly anticipated forthcoming book, The XX Edge, Unlocking Higher Returns and Lower Risk, which will be available June 21st. Patience and Ruth, welcome to Earn and Invest. Patience, I want to start with you. At the outside of the book, you point to a quote from Christian Lagarde. He was the head of the International Monetary Fund during the 2008 financial crisis. If it had been Lehman sisters rather than Lehman brothers, the world might well look a lot different today. Is the XX Edge arguing that women make better entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders, or is it more a question of diversity in general that's beneficial?
2: Thank you very much, Dr. G, for having us on your podcast. We've listened from and they're awesome, and we're hoping that this one will be equally awesome. The question about what Christine Lagarde said—so that was right after the 2008 financial crisis. For me, when she said, if it had been Lehman sisters, things might have been different. I thought to myself, what if it had been Lehman sisters and brothers? So to to your question, it is about gender diversity. What we know is that gender diverse teams outperform peer non-diverse teams. And that's what the book is about, really talking about what happens when women are in decision-making rooms, in innovation labs, and in asset allocation rooms. That, that you are ultimately going to get lower risk and higher performance. Ruth, a quote from the
1: beginning of the book. The field of gender-focused investing is about to be flipped. Traditionally, the field has prioritized how finance can improve the lives of women and girls and thereby lift families and communities. Consider a different paradigm, one with women at the center of investing as agents and actors, not just as beneficiaries. Ruth, why is now the time for that flip? And why hasn't it happened before?
0: Well, I'm not sure why it hasn't happened before, but Doc, thank you so much for having us here and giving us the opportunity to talk about our book, The XX Edge. The patients and I have been both working in this space for quite a while, and what we've seen is traditionally finance has been used as a tool to improve outcomes for women and girls around the world, and if you think about things like microfinance or or other areas where Bringing more capital to women in their communities has been a tool to lift them up out of poverty, improve outcomes. But what we've learned from many of those mini experiments and from what we're seeing across all asset classes is that, in fact, when women are at the center of the financial decision making, not just in microfinance, but in public equity as CEOs, as asset allocators with big financial institutions or Heads of funds, whether it's venture capital or hedge funds, um, that the returns are better for everybody. And that when you have gender diversity, you bring all of the talent to bear to make the best decisions. So it's not it, it, flipping the paradigm means it's not finance is not a tool to improve the lives of women who may be in need of that improvement. But in fact, when women are in the center of the financial decision making, it improves
1: outcomes for everybody both financial and social outcome. Patience, can you describe when you yourself made that mindset flip? So certainly a lot of people start in the place where like, we need gender equity. We need it in the workplace. We need it into business, et cetera. Can you remember when it dawned on you that not only would it be good for us as women, but actually it would be good for everybody if we had a more diversified leadership in business and, and maybe even in the world?
2: I spent most of my career working in investments and in most, in most rooms that I was in, in early in, in, in my career, it felt lonesome. I was one of few women, and certainly I was one of few people of color, few women of color. I started my, my career in infrastructure investing. You know, that doesn't have very many women around it. And then in restructuring, so special operations where you're restructuring non-performing assets, and that doesn't have very many w- women either. Finally, I, I worked in financial markets, investing in financial institutions around the world, but also private equity and venture, venture capital. And I traveled all over the world. And one of the things that I noted w- w- was that in most of those communities and those meeting rooms, I, it, it, I was one of a few women. However, whenever I was driving and traveling in all of these places, I realized that there were women businesses that employed a whole lot of people that I would see on my way to and from specific airports in whatever country I was traveling to. But I'd never really, to be honest, thought about the access to capital for those women-run businesses. And it wasn't until 2008 when we had the subprime financial crisis and I started really interrogating what the investment strategy at the, the World Bank, the IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, where I worked. Beyond our book, our investment book that was directed at microfinance, there really wasn't much else. And we had done incredible, innovative in financial engineering in the climate space. We, we had done that. We had issued green bonds, etc. But I, I realized that there was an opportunity that was female. That we, we as an institution that had all these levers to change, we're just not leveraging. And There was a moment after 2008 when we looked at the performance of companies that were managed by gender diverse teams, how they were performing through the crisis, whether it was their relative stability of their stock market, sorry, stock prices, whether it was stability of their earnings, whether it was how they were weathering the storm and emerging from the storm a little quicker than peers, and all of it is relative. I noted one thing gender diverse teams in the C-suite, in the leadership and at the board level was making a difference. And so I took a step back and realized there is something here. There is value that the world is leaving at the table. And as we emerged from that crisis of 2008, there was an opportunity to do things differently, to bring in the full talent, sort of emerge into a full potential paradigm where women would be equally at the table. To bring about the change that we all wanted to see and the reality is you know nemen brothers alone sort of this male way of doing things hadn't served us well and it was an opportunity to do things differently so that was my aha moment i haven't looked back
1: we're going to talk in a moment about how the gender diverse teams can make such a difference but ruth first i want to talk about your history you, like I, grew up in medicine. You're an obstetrician-gynecologist. You were a Kaiser Permanente from 1990 to 2012. The interesting thing about the book, The XX Edge, is we're not really just talking about business and entrepreneurship. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking about politics and leadership in general. Tell me about growing up as a physician. Did you feel the same gender disparities there as we look traditionally at in entrepreneurship today and business?
0: Well, Doc, I had the privilege of having a wonderful career in medicine at at Kaiser Permanente. And Kaiser is known to be extremely diverse, both in gender and in many different ways, a very diverse community, a very diverse leadership. But I still noticed that as a physician, there were equal numbers of men and women in the rank and file, and even at the sort of mid-manager level. But as you got higher up, especially in the C-suite, that the number of women dropped off. And I also noticed that there were many fewer women in leadership in all of the vendors and the different companies that we associated with, whether it was the pharmaceutical companies or the, you know, whatever we needed in order to make our business work, that that as you got higher up the pay scale, that there were fewer and fewer women. But I noticed early on in my career that officially as an obstetrician gynecologist, how Central women were to their families and to their communities. And and we know that when women's health is optimized, that their families' health is optimized. I also know that women tend to make most of the consumer decisions around healthcare. So the the dichotomy between the leadership in the healthcare industry in the United States and who's actually running the show you know we saw with the pandemic all those videos of the essential workers they were well over 70 80% women and women were the ones who were taking their families into the emergency rooms they're the consumers of healthcare and so this gap between leadership and and real decision making in the industry and the frontline both in terms of the users and the operators in the healthcare system is really pronounced
1: patients let's look big picture here how big do you think the potential impact globally is of giving women an equal seat at the table? Like how big of an effect are we talking about before we get into the nitty-gritty?
2: Yeah. It's massive actually. So back in 2009, 2010, when I I uh, made the decision and and worked with my colleagues to to develop the banking on women platform, and that was a, a pun on words, banking on women, which means betting on women, trusting women to 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 do the right thing but also Providing them access to capital. One of the things we did was to retain McKinsey to work with us to actually size the access to capital gap that existed at the time for women-owned, women-founded entities around the world, mostly small and medium-sized enterprises. And that gap in 2010, I believe, when we did the study, was 300 billion dollars. If we could, you know, find ways of giving that amount of capital to women in all these different countries, we would be able to accelerate the growth of their companies. And we know that, you know, they are just, you know, small and medium enterprises are the backbone of any economy in terms of employment. So that's one. And then in 2015, McKinsey actually did another study around this. And they found that if they they, they looked at 95 countries, and they found that between 2015, the they projected that between 2015 and 2025, in these 95 countries moved towards greater gender equity and employment and in how they run their economy, we would have generated an additional $28 trillion of capital for, you know, to, into the global GDP. And even the conservative estimate where they said it's not, even if you don't get the equity, if these 95 countries just take steps to do a little extra to just get as good as the next country, you know, above them in, in the ranking, that would add $12 trillion of capital into global GDP. So these are not, you know, small numbers. These are big numbers. And as we and those were estimates in 2015. And I'm sure if we, you know, adjusted these for inflation, etc., these numbers would be much larger today. And so the opportunity is significant. So that's just from the potential for GDP growth. I think there's a potential that we could actually be building healthier communities through innovations that are more inclusive potential. And then there's, you know, folks with different lived experiences to what Ruth said earlier on. The innovations and the ways that we, are, we would be able to beat back some of the challenges that are accelerating at us today would also be differentiated, delivering more than just the GDP growth, but also just healthier, wealthier community. And for investors as well, investors would, would make much better returns. Ruth, how far are we
1: behind today? Because I, I think we know where we want to end up. But let's say we look at corporate boards or leadership, in the United States today, how far are we behind when it comes to true gender equity, so to speak?
0: Well, there's many different facets of, of gender equity. There's certainly just I, mean, I think I think patients in my favorite statistic is the amount of dollars that are being directed by men versus women and particularly white men. So ninety seven point seven percent of capital in the world is decided upon, deployed by men. Hmm. So if you you can look at all kinds of other statistics where the balance is way skewed, the number of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, I think, is 41 at the the most recent statistics. The number of venture, the amount of venture capital dollars that are deployed to female-run companies, the amount of real estate in developing countries, you know, farmers and how much land they have versus their male peers. So it goes on and on and on the balances, but but ultimately it's about the dollars. And if women are making less than 3% of the capital allocation decisions in the world, there's huge opportunity for equity. And certainly when you look at things like pay equity, leadership equity, responsibilities, benefits, the amount of hours that women work in the home versus men, how the care economy needs to be built out to allow women to be productive in the workplace and not distracting. There's many, many, many opportunities. It's all a question of what, what metric you want to look at. But, but ultimately, we can make some inroads towards the absolute amount of dollars that are being deployed by women.
2: I think that would, that would really start tipping the right direction. And Doug G, you asked about the context. Why now? Why is this Equity important in this moment. I think you know to the point that we we discussed earlier. Two thousand eight was a point in in time that we thought you know we can definitely do better and differently. The changes have not been step, have not been have been marginal. They've not been massive step, step changes. Twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one have been that other big moment when we all when the whole world stopped and we almost all sort of experienced similar context, no matter where you were from, and the visual of 2020 and, t- and 2021, then, you know, those care workers who were the wall between, you know, us and more debt, the whip female scientists who made it possible, whether it was the discovery of CRISPR or mRNA or the creation of the vaccines, a lot of females who had been, who had, had limited access to capital during their careers who were... In those labs creating those vaccines, whether it was you know the care economy and men finally staying at home as well, and realizing that you know juggling your work and providing care, whether it's to your young children or, or elderly parents is is not easy we, we We have a moment in which we had common experiences and and that context makes this moment the moment for this book to be birth, you know, the XX edge and marking higher returns and lower risk is, is a book that is for this moment. Because to your point, we talk about all the different areas where there's potential to make real changes, but to build in resilience, resilience that will help us navigate the next crisis. And the next crisis is not going to be 10 years away or 12 years away. You know, crisis disruptions and dislocations are coming at us. At much more accelerated rates. Ruth, I'm interested by
1: what Patience says about this moment. Specifically, in the XX Edge, you guys mentioned a few times there are different characteristics that women bring to the table that make gender diversity so important, especially. Now, tell us about some of those characteristics and why they're important.
0: Well, first of all, we've touched already on some of the contextual differences, that women are more are closer to the problems that need to be solved. And actually, Doc, as you know, in healthcare, we've learned a long time ago that if you use frontline teams and patients to help innovate the solutions to healthcare problems, you actually get much more sustainable, better quality outcomes. So we know that because women are closer to the problems, whether it's poverty alleviation, climate refugees, violence, healthcare, that, that when you bring women to the table, they are more likely to contribute to, to better outcomes. We also know that if you're only taking the top 5% of talent, and that's true with, with women in, whether it's in executive leadership or funds or in entrepreneurship, that you're leaving 45% of talent, the top, you know, better than average talent out of the room. And we also know historically that products have often been, been designed by men even when they're being designed for women. A great example is with heart disease, for instance, that a lot of the original heart disease studies were designed by male physicians, male cardiologists, and they totally missed the boat in terms of female heart disease. Or crash test dummies is the other favorite example of a a time when women's bodies and anatomy were not considered in designing safety measures for cars. So those are sort of the contextual considerations for why women need to be at the table. But there's also what we found in our research was fascinating, that there really are inherent gender differences. There are, there are patterns and traits that show up more commonly in women that do make them excellent financial leaders. For instance, they tend to be more collaborative. And we saw that with, for instance, vaccine development, how quickly it went and how much, how much collaboration there was across different companies that were working on technologies. They also tend to be less um, take fewer risks, so they're more risk-aware. They take more careful consideration of the risks. And in our research, we actually looked at the gambling literature, and we saw that that it really plays out in terms of how men are more socially pressured into taking risks, and women are, and, and that was certainly plays out in the boardroom and in the C-suite as well. And then women tend to be more, to prioritize the long view, So they won't be as likely to sacrifice long-term outcomes for short-term gains. And and once again, these are traits that are more common in women, but there are plenty of men who have those sorts of collaborative and risk-aware and long-view sorts of traits. And there are plenty of women who don't. But if you look across a bell-shaped curve, there's no question that women are more likely to have those sorts of traits. And those have been missing from many of the leadership entities around the world.
1: In a moment, we're going to talk about some of these examples. I specifically like the example of the crash test dummies and the example of the MRA and COVID vaccines. But before we do, patients, another quote. The evidence is clear that when women share in the control of capital as board directors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, borrowers, heads of government, better social and financial outcomes are the result. The book is packed with examples. I mean, you guys give tons of examples of how this is the case. I want you to just pull out one that you think is particularly stunning or interesting to you. Tell us about an example where this is really clear.
2: So to the point of the data that we have in this book, we know that gender-inclusive teams are 21% more likely to see outperformance and profitability relative to all-male teams. We also know that female founders perform 63% better than those that are all-male Teams, and this has been observed over a 10 year period. So there, there are many data points like this. But one of the stories, actually, maybe I'll, I'll point to two stories that sort of brought this home for me quite in a, in a real way. So if you take the city of Medellin in Colombia, for instance, where it was a city that suffered from quite a bit of drug trafficking and that the, the tenant collateral damage that happened. In in, in in a community. Medellin has been transformed to one of the smart cities. And when you talk to people who, who look at how, cities, how a city could actually be transformed over a relatively short period of time, uh, Medellin is one of those examples. And one of the really interesting things about it is that the women in the community, one of the things they realize is that... Th- so one, they implemented sort of community governance, where they created pods of communal councils that were involved in the governance of the city. The other part is the women realized that they needed to be part of the budgeting process. They needed to be in that decision-making because to to the point that we're making, asset allocation really matters. Who is in the room when people are deciding about where capital goes matters because the mid the journeys of people informed the priorities that they're going to assign to to their decision-making. And women delegates to these councils decided that they absolutely wanted representation on these capital allocation or budgeting allocation committees. And that made a difference. And what you see is capital was allocated to the basic needs of the community to a place where they took care of the first level of challenges that they had but they also understood that education was really critical. And we know that when women have money, they spend more than 80 cents on the dollar taking care of the, the needs of the family. And these women just applied that across the community. So education, healthcare, creating safe, a safe environment like city lighting and, and so on for the community. And over time, that actually resulted in a healthier and wealthier community. Another example that I like is one from Mozambique, where the women, the young girls, sort of were experiencing harassment and feelings of being unsafe in certain parts of the city. And they decided to start taking pictures and mapping the zones in the city where they felt unsafe and, you know, started sharing these. And then this mapping actually ended up becoming part of city planning where everybody ended up benefiting because, you know, more lighting was provided. The the areas that were considered unsafe, infrastructure was put in to actually make them safer. And th- that brings about, you know, all kinds of knock-on positive impact because, you know, it's not just the women who are going to feel safer, which, which means they will move freely, which means they can take jobs in areas that they may not have wanted to take jobs because of feeling unsafe going to and from those, those locations. It has an knock-on effect that everybody in the community benefits because they also feel safer. And, and when women are making more money, there is a, a growth of the pie, of the economic pie, and, 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 and. And so the, the, the benefits just stack on all the way to the growth in GDP. And so those are some of the examples I really liked. And there's so many examples in this book.
1: We are talking to Patience Merame Ball and Ruth Schaber. They are authors of the forthcoming book, The XX Edge, Unlocking Higher Returns and Lower Risk, which will be available June 21st. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. usa.com that's landroverusa.com hey everybody i just wanted to remind you if you want to find out what is going on with the earn and invest podcast or me jordan grummet there are a few ways to get more information one is that you can go to my personal website jordangrummet.com that's j o r d a n g r u m e t.com There you'll find links to my medical blog, my financial blog, as well as the Earn and Invest podcast. You'll also learn what is the newest, latest, and greatest when it comes to my book, Taking Stock, which will be coming out August 2nd. We're going to make the push for early or pre-sales in July. You can find it on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble's. You name it, you can find it there. And last but not least, visit us on Facebook. The best way to get there is earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. In our Facebook group, we discuss everything from personal finance, to current events, to what's happening in our world, as well as I post every episode there. So check us out. A few different ways to reach me, either at com or at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. I hope to see you there and become part of the Earn and Invest community. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to patients Mary May Ball and Ruth Schaber. They are the authors of the XX Edge, Unlocking High Returns and Lower Risk. I want to talk, Ruth, about the crash test dummies. You point to the fact that when products and services are developed without women at the table, people are harmed and money is lost. Tell us about that debacle and how it demonstrates how gender diversity in the creation of products can be beneficial.
0: Sure. Thanks for the opportunity, Doc. It's really this is an important story because it's safety and it's business. So the brilliant decision was made that we need to actually find out what happens to people when they ride in cars and there's a crash. And some of the original scientists actually experimented on themselves, or they're probably on their graduate students. And the decision was made to actually manufacture dummies, and and I think they were probably also animal studies that were done and. But the probably largely as a cost-cutting measure, the the original crash test dummies were actually just the average male size and shape, and there was very little mention of well, what about women's anatomy, what about pregnant women's anatomy, what about larger men or women. So so it was this prototype, and whether it was seatbelts or airbags, they were really designed. With the safety of that prototype average size man as the example, and I think we all know that there were ramifications of this because in the early airbags, for instance, that the smaller people, male or female, where they weren't their heads weren't above the dashboard when the airbag was deployed, they were dramatically injured that's why we have that off button now that where you can turn the passenger seat airbag off because, you know, people get, have died early on and they had to rework the safety systems for airbags in order to accommodate different sized people and certainly women. It's also true, for instance, for safety belts for pregnant women that no consideration was taken around how pregnant women put a seatbelt around their, their developing bellies. So having, it was a great advancement to have this prototype human being to experiment on in a car. And and it's tremendous how much safety measures we have now when we drive. But if from the start, if consideration had been made for the different anatomy, women's anatomy, in terms of how they respond to whiplash, for instance, and, and their cervical spines are different, where their center of gravity is. Just their general body mass. So if those things had been brought to the table from the beginning, there's no question that lives would have been saved. And also quite a bit of money would have been saved because I think the car industry had to rework these problems and, and develop workarounds and and redevelop their, their safety measures once it was realized that this, this mistake been made.
1: Patients, let's talk about COVID 19. One of the most dramatic scientific discoveries of certainly the last hundred years is the quick rollout of the vaccines for COVID. Talk about how gender diversity and leadership, specifically female leadership, played a role in this quick rollout.
2: Yeah, so this is one where we all are still living in that sense of appreciation for what happened, right? Two days ago, I had folks over for dinner, and we're still relearning how to actually have folks over for dinner in an enclosed environment. But all of it is possible because of vaccines. And so the, the, the history of how we got to a place where vaccines were rolled out so quickly starts you know, in, in so many different places. But one of them is the Genome Project. And you had a lot of men decide that they were going to study. It was sort of the trending thing. And a lot of male scientists were, were studying the genome. But there was this woman and a few other scientists, but Jennifer Doutner, who decided that one of the things that she wanted to study was RNA, sort of the the less glamorous cousin of what was happening on the genome side. And that was less glamorous, which also meant you know, less money was being directed to that. But her conviction was this is what she wanted to study. And along with that study, she and another doctor, a French doctor named Chapantier, were able to discover to make the CRISPR discovery, and CRISPR allowed the ability to really isolate the the RNA's capability to be you know to be mapped to maybe genome uh, alteration or gene or alteration, and we have a doctor like Dr. Catalina uh, Carigo. Who was also studying, R- studying RNA. She came in from an Eastern European country, went to work at the University of Pennsylvania, indicated that she wanted to study RNA, and really wasn't getting any money. This also comes to the lack of access to capital. So we have lack of access to capital for women who entrepreneurs. We also have lack of access to capital for women PIs. And this is well known, less than 3% of capital that is grant capital goes to female PI. But she she stuck with it. She went on to try and start a company based on her RNA work and that didn't work out. It didn't, you know, it she wasn't able to get, you know, capital to really build on that company. It it took a man, a Canadian gentleman who start, who founded Mordena who recognized and read a paper, one of her papers and decided to bring her in. So. Sabantier and Doudna's work on CRISPR was one of the building blocks for the RNA study, which then Dr. Kariko took over. Well, she didn't take over. It was one of the things that she did. And mRNA as a methodology for developing treatments or a way of sending in into our genes. I'm not a scientist, so I don't explain this very well. You know, altering our genes to to be able to, to... fight back virus attacks, she was able to then build on that. Uh, And then fast forward to a time that, you know, COVID-19 was in our lives, you had all this research of women who had been collaborating and working in spaces where they were not recognized, not getting access to capital, Yes, Dr. Jennifer Doudna and Chapantier had been recognized for CRISPR. They'd gotten an award for CRISPR, but, you know, not very much else in terms of recognition and access to capital. But this was the foundation of what was needed for the vaccine. And you then had women like, you know, Dr. Kizmekia Kobe at at NIH, uh, an African-American scientist who worked with Modena on their vaccine. You had the folks in the in the Pfizer lab, but even AstraZeneca on the other side of the pond in the UK, the, it was women scientists who had been doing all kinds of work that had less that had been considered less glamorous were able to to turn their research into a vaccine. And the AstraZeneca vaccine has women behind it as well. It just goes to show you that women will the long view that we talked about that it's not necessarily what's glamorous today, what's getting all the buzz today, and what's getting capital today that they gravitate towards. They will gravitate towards conviction, right? They were convinced that there was something in RNA, and they wanted to continue studying it regardless of the the struggles of access to capital. And this is how we, we end up in a place where I can have dinner in my home with friends who are coming from all over the the place and we we have a world that's opening up again. So that's just a a good example of what happens with sort of collaborative leadership, collaborative innovation, and having the long view, understanding that this is not the sexy thing today, but it's an important thing to study.
1: So Ruth, we've talked about product development, crash test dummies. We've talked about Scientific research and COVID. Let's look at how gender diversity can have a large impact on what I feel are two incredibly big crises that we're facing today. Let's start with healthcare. How can gender diversity help better solve for some of our healthcare issues today?
0: Well, it was really fun to write the book, The XX Edge, because it gave me an opportunity to fantasize about my personal vision for what the healthcare system in the United States should look like. And the US healthcare system is truly broken. We spend more money than any other country and we have only mediocre outcomes. And true, if you have a lot of money and you can have access and privilege to maneuver in the system, you can get the best healthcare in the world. world. But that's a small percentage of Americans who actually have access to that. And most people not. And you know, if you look around the world to other healthcare systems that are much more female in orientation, much more matriarchal orientation. They rely heavily on community health workers, for instance, and there's not so many over population with, with specialists, no offense to my specialist colleagues, but they really have a much more of a community, family-oriented approach to health care. They understand just intuitively the social determinants. They understand that if there's violence in a home, it doesn't matter whether they're giving prescriptions for the, the, the best drugs to fight anxiety or to, to combat other types of mental health disorders. Somebody's got to go in the home and deal with the violence that's going on there. And, and so if you if took that more of a feminine, collaborative, less ego approach to healthcare in the United States, I think that we would have a frontline healthcare team and workers that were largely social workers, that physicians would be All physicians would be specialists. We'd be brought in when the community can't figure out how else to help somebody, to write prescriptions, to do surgery. And our workforce would largely be the what what it looks like around the world, which is community health workers who actually are part of part of the community where people live and work and understand health from that perspective rather than from the hospital perspective. So that's one example, I think, of how having more gender diversity. In healthcare leadership would bring in a whole different approach to medicine.
1: Patients, tell us about how gender diversity is part of the solution to our climate change issues.
2: So uh, this is another big one, right? And as we all face accelerated rates of you know fires and and droughts and floods in different parts of the world at a rate that just not well, at least in recorded history, we have a lot of hotter than any temperature recorded in, you know, uh, in recorded history and that sort of thing that we, we're hearing more and more of. So here's what we know. 33% of the GHG emissions that we need to uh, control for us to be able to manage the increase in temperatures to the rate where the UN and the different bodies that have been studying this have indicated we need to get the temperature, you know, control to. 32% of those emissions are from agricultural undertakings around the world. And here's what we also know: in, in some parts of the world, more than 50% of the food is actually farmed by women. Women are more than 50% of, you know, small-scale farmers. And this is more the case in in, in Asia, in, in Africa, for instance. And so this opportunity to deal with this. 33%, and, and I, I I'll speak to the, to the other, you know, to the other 66% that we need to deal with. But this 33%, these women farmers are once again still so proximate to the challenges. We pointed a story in our book where in Ghana, this lack of recognition of these women farmers as critical assets to GDP means that you're losing out on getting their know-how on how best to tackle climate change and build in resilience, right? For the other 66% that's not agricultural related, we all know that most decisions in households around consumption, women are central to those decisions. So demand, the demand side of climate mitigation is also very female. And so that's part of the when we talk about climate mitigation, we tend to talk about you know, the build out of the, the large power generation assets. And, and I used to, that's what I used to do in my previous career. And so there is much to be said around that because we need to actually move those to, we need to transition those to green generation. But there's other part, the consumption part, whether you turn the lights off in, a, in your home or not, what sort of appliances you're using in, that are either climate friendly or not, all of those things, women are central to those decisions. And we're not bringing them into the conversation enough. And I can tell you that if we had more women in asset allocation rooms making the investment decision, if we had more women in in asset allocating to even the smallholder farmers, the access to credit in order to do what they do, that is part of it as well. So an access to decision-making in corporations where, you know, how corporations produce their products how they move their product, all those decisions with women inside the room would have a difference in outcome.
1: Ruth, let me take the position of a narrow-minded listener. Now, granted, none of the Earn and Invest listeners are this narrow-minded, but let's just say I'm a 52-year-old white guy. I listen to Earn and Invest because I want to make money, right? That's what I'm. I, I want to know how should I invest my money what's going to make me most successful i hear about climate change i hear about healthcare but i can't change any of those things what is the message for them here about gender diversity and how it can affect their bottom line
0: thanks for asking that question and this is something that's really important to to patients and i in in thinking about the gender finance and for for decades the folks who have been working in this space have been talking to themselves and and making a ton of money Both patients and I have managed our own portfolios, personal portfolios, and also for our organizations with gender and exclusively gender focused framework. So at the Tara Health Foundation for the past eight years, we've screened every single investment, whether it's in public equities, in community grants, or in private equity, venture capital for, with a gender analysis. And we've beat the market every year. So, so. It's not that we've made money despite having a gender focus, it's we've made a lot of money because we have a gender focus. And for all the reasons we've talked about in in this hour, the diversity in general and gender diversity in particular brings the opportunity for new innovation, for a filling the gaps in how decisions are made, in growing the pie. All those things mean that each individual investor is gonna make more money. If you look at something, just one little way of understanding this, women tend to pay their loans back more often. They pay them back more reliably. They're much less likely to default whether it's a business loan or a personal loan. And yet, historically, banks have preferred to lend money to men. Doesn't make any sense. It is a stupid business decision to prioritize a male borrower over a woman. When women are gonna be much more reliable, they're gonna be more loyal to your bank. We know that too. And we've looked at some of that interesting data as well. So if I was a big bank, I would start prioritizing my female borrowers. And that's easy. I would get ahead of my competition. I would have much more reliable repayments and I would rest a lot easier at night. So there's one example how prioritizing women and and just prioritizing gender diversity more broadly is going to return higher returns
1: to men. Patience, you go as far at the end of the book of discussing the eight imperatives for a winning portfolio, specifically as individuals and especially as men. What can we do now that we're aware of the situation?
2: So thank you very much, because at the end of the day, it's the so what, right? It's the so what that counts. We've given you all this data. You are now convinced. And now, you know, what should you be doing? And to to Ruth's point, it is really what Cara Health Foundation does, we do every single day, looking at when you make decisions that centralize the role of women, how does it improve your financial bottom line, but also impact outcomes. So. Practical thing, if you are an asset owner and you are looking at who should be doing, who should be moving your capital, who should, should, should who should be your asset managers, I think you should at least look at whether there is gender diversity in that asset manager entity, because you will get a differentiated portfolio, you will get a portfolio that has better safeguards around risk mitigation. And you will get over the long term a portfolio that does not prioritize short term gain, but really gives you good returns over time. So take a look at who is actually in the the investment committee in the rooms that are making the decisions. You should listen to women more. I mean, that's just basic and simple, right? Partly because to the point that we made about women tend to be risk aware. They tend to research opportunities, and, and traditionally it's been called women are risk-averse. No, women are risk-aware. And that makes it so that they are looking around the corners, doing their research. You want to, if they're talking, you want to probably stop talking over them and listen to them. Then when you look at the companies that you're investing in, or in your single-name security, or, or your your portfolio funds, whatever it is, do a, an, a quick audit. Look at you know, who is the leadership? What? Where are the women? Are they in the C-suite? Are they on, on the board? But go deeper and look at, is there pay equity in this organization? Because it's one thing to be, you know, attracted to, well, first of all, are there women across the ranks? So that it's not just at the top, top but it's an organization that actually has diversity across the ranks and values that diversity in how a company shows that the value of diversity is are they paying all the employees equally? Are they providing benefit packages that allow their employees to thrive? You know, what sort of products are they putting out into the market? And then when it comes to where you buy, where you shop, if you live in a, in, a, in a community with small business owners, be aware of, you know, where are you spending your dollars? Are you spending your dollars with small businesses in your community that are women-owned or not. So these are all the things that you can do at a personal level, at an asset allocation level and beyond.
0: Doc, if I can add to what Patience said too, that a lot of folks who are in the position to hire and recruit for leadership positions, they say, well, there just aren't, there just aren't any women out there, or it's only a certain type of person who applies. And so I just hire the best candidate. It takes work to find more diverse people for your workforce. If you're in the position of being able to recruit, you have to be intentional. You have to actually go outside of your usual circle. We all know people who look just like us. And so you have to work at it. And that also means that if you're running a business of your own and you have you know, a pipeline of future leaders, you have to be intentional about mentoring and supporting people who don't look like you. And if that means, if you're a man, that means that being a little bit extra attentive to the females in your workforce, making sure they're getting what they need, have a conversation about, with them about what it will take for them to move to the next level to be promoted. And we also found in our, in our research that men tend to, this is not an absolute, there is no absolutes, but men tend to be more confident when they're being promoted. They'll t- to learn on the job. They'll take, a, they'll take a promotion, and even though they know they're not quite qualified for it, and then they'll, they'll rise to that occasion. Whereas women tend to be less, re, you know, they're more reluctant to take on work unless they feel 100% qualified for it. So as a boss, you need to recognize that that tendency and be supportive and encouraging and be visibly supportive of all of your workforce, not just the folks that look just like you.
1: Well, Ruth and Patience, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I feel like there are two huge takeaways from this conversation, as well as many others. One is, there's no question, gender diversity is both the morally and ethically right thing to do, but it's also financially the right thing to do. And I think we can't forget that, that we're really talking about better outcomes all around, The second is that we've got major problems. We've got problems with healthcare. We've got problems with climate change. We've got problems with gender-based violence, which is something you guys write about, but we didn't talk about today. And if we wanna solve these problems, we have to try something different. We have to break the mold of what we've been doing so far and expand. And I think looking at gender diversity throughout all these realms, whether we're talking about business or politics, or even just human rights is one of the pathways forward. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can people find you if they want to learn more. Ruth, let's start with you. What is going on with you? And if people want to ask you questions or interact with you, is there an easy way for them to get in touch with you?
0: Thanks, Doc. Well, you know, we are both first time authors. So, of course, we are very focused on promoting our book, not just because we want the book to be successful, but we feel strongly that this is a movement that the book is a resource for, that we really do want to flip the face of finance so that it is more diverse and that women have the the appropriate 50 percent of the access to capital. So ultimately, that's what we're doing. You can certainly hope that you'll go to our website, the XXEdge.com, take a look at some more of the information there, pre-order our book, which will be coming out on June 21st. And through that website, you can get in touch with me and
1: with patients. And Patience, anything else going on in your life and uh, anything else you want to share with the audience?
2: The book, The Exertage, Unlocking High Returns and Lower Risk, is a manifestation of the thesis at Women of the World Endowment. So in addition to the book and all the wonderful things that are The research that we're able to surface, the case stories that we're able to tell, the work that we do every day at Women of the World Endowment is really living this thesis, centralizing and providing fuel into the thesis of women as solution drivers and not beneficiaries and victims, but really solution drivers to some of the intractable problems that we all face. And for that, I continue to be incredibly excited. We started Women of the World Endowment three years ago Ruth is a chair on our board. We are we are partners in that as well as the book, and, so, and we we're continuing to push. And some of our investments prove out the thesis that, in fact, all of our investments that you can invest with this thesis of centralizing women, whether it's in the strategy, in the in the team that you're selecting, in the products that you're investing into, and you will make, you know, strong financial returns. We we we're proving that out. And the website to find more information on the women of the world endowment is waweendowment.org. So that's W-O-W-E-N-D-O-W-M-E-N-T dot org. And you can also find us on LinkedIn. But would love for as many people as possible to join the movement of changing the face of financial markets and changing the face of decision making in so many different rooms and innovation labs, etc. Because that's what the world needs to push back on some of the accelerating challenges.
1: The book is The XX Edge Unlocking Higher Returns and Lower Risk. It will be available everywhere on June 21st. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Ruth Schaber and Patience Mary May Ball. That's a wrap. So tell me, did we do the book justice?
2: <laughs> You're incredible. I hope every every podcast that we have is as good as this one. Um, to your point, the fact that you've read the book um, just really made the conversation one that was you know that went deep um in in areas that we may not have time with other folks who are not well read you know who have not read the book um so that's really appreciated. We truly appreciate you reading the book and asking us the questions that others.
1: Oh, we lost you. <laughs> we lost you for a second.
2: Sorry, I really mm-hmm. didn't have speaking.
1: Uh, it happened here and there, but I'll be able to. I'll be able to work around it. It'll be fine.
0: Yeah, um, I echo to what patient said, Doc. I thought that um, you did a great job of um, asking great questions. And um, I think you really captured the. There, there wasn't a time when I said, well, I wish I, I hope they'll ask me this so that we can bring up a certain point. I, I don't think anything was left out. Um, I mean, of course, there's always more stories to tell. There's always more things to um, talk about. But um, you did a great job. Really appreciate yeah. it.
1: Thank you. It, it's Um, I will tell you it, it's. It's challenging because there's a lot in that book um, in a good way, right? So there's a lot of detail. Um, and I know and I have this sometimes when I deal with some of these much bigger subjects that, you know, you want to make sure that you give people the real gist and story of the book. You get to some of the real meat, but you know that you have to leave lots out to do that and yet still have a deeper conversation. That's always the struggle I have, um, of, of trying to encapsulate that. It gave
0: us the opportunity to go into the details and the stories, but still come back up to the yeah. high levels. So, so that was great. And this is, you know, we're new at this too. So this is great practice for us to, um, appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Good. You
0: know, any feedback for us, um, in terms of how the interview went and, um, what you would advise for us going forward and, and, you know, it's,
2: we patients and I have been working. It's beyond certain your answers, beyond certain your answers, uh, we, we get that all the time. See, I don't
1: see. I don't agree with that at all, but that's my take. So my take is if I'm doing my job as a good podcaster, you'll barely hear my voice. Like my voice is really to ask you the probing questions that get to tell us your secrets and then sitting back and letting you tell us your secrets. So my opinion is I would much rather have those. Again, I can always go and kind of clean things up later on in editing. But that's where the real, like, my people have heard me talk enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, the idea is to highlight, actually, your book and what you have to say. Um, You know, the only, no one can tell you how to deliver what you know best. The only information I'd always give is make it easy and good and clean, which, again, is good mics, good Wi-Fi connection. You know, come prepared. Try to make sure you're in a quiet place. Those are you're really somewhat at the mercy of the podcast host right so you're going to get some who are very into you're going to get some people who read a few pages or a a chapter and are going to say, so tell us about your book and expect you to like come to the party with everything. Um, You're probably going to get a mix of it all. Um, On the other hand. The bit of research I've done so far on book marketing, which is something I'm obviously very interested in because I'm in your situation, is that um, do as many podcasts as you can. Um, try to hit as as broad audience as you can, because more than the book tours, more than the media, like getting mentioned in the big places, more than any of that, I think podcasts probably sell books. Um, so it's worth being on those stages and sounding competent above and beyond that. You can only kind of Use whatever the host gives you and, and try to kind of answer questions as best as you can there. Um, but being in those places is my suspicion, at least from, from the bit I can tell, is, is what will help uh, with success. Because nowadays, even though you may have a great publisher, there's only so far they're going to go with your marketing. The rest is really up to you.